Well, last week we started a, a six-week conversation called Long Story Short. We're looking at the big picture of the Bible, the big story, God's story of the Bible. I mean, how do we understand all the different verses and stories and books and letters in light of God's much bigger story? And last week we talked about it's sort of like if you handed somebody just a bag of puzzle pieces <laughs> and you said, here, have at it. <laughs> It'd be like, well, what do I, what do, I do with these? I've got all these, all these different pieces, but how do they go together? What's the big picture that I'm putting together that connects all of these puzzle pieces? You know, sometimes we, we hand a Bible to someone, like a bag of puzzle pieces, where we're like, here, have at it. And it's like, I don't know where to start. I don't know how this connects with this, and, and this connects with that, until we get the big picture. You see, if somebody hands me a bag of puzzle pieces in this picture, I'm going to be more motivated to, to put the pieces together. I'm going to have that big picture of like, oh, that's probably the O in Ohio State. Oh, that's, that piece probably fits with the green on the field there. And, and so we're able to put all the different pieces together as we see that bigger picture. You see, because if you miss any part of the story, you're going to miss the complete picture. In order to understand the middle, you have to understand the beginning. And in order to understand the end, you need to understand the middle. And so last week we started with Act 1. We're looking at six acts. Uh, the first one was creation, the beginning. We looked at Genesis 1 and 2, particularly Genesis 1-1. In the beginning, God created. Because creation sets the stage for the rest of the story, for everything that is to come. It sets the stage for where I came from, where I'm going, why do we exist? God created with beauty and power and design and order. And at the pinnacle of creation, God creates us in his image and his likeness with a purpose and a plan. He created us to have relationship with him. And not only relationship with him, but relationship with one another. And so on day six, God contemplates, he looks at all that he's created, and he concludes in verse 31, God saw all that he had made, and it was very good. What he created was not just good, it was very good. And we're part of that. God created, God crafted, God breathed life into mankind, and all life was in unison and harmony with God. All was good at creation. In fact, we read that God, man and God, walked together in the cool of the day in the garden together. together. Adam and Eve were living in this unparalleled beauty and splendor amid the, the crystal clear waters and the emerald green forests of Eden. Not only that, but in perfect unity and community with God, with one another and all creation. They were one flesh, reflecting the kind of intimacy and order of God the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, the kind of intimacy with God and one another that we were created for. God with us. But that's not our experience today, is it? <laughs> I mean, what, what happened? 
We just look around, we listen, we watch, and we begin to realize that, man, our world's a mess. It's like someone turned off the lights and now we're shrouded in darkness. Something drastic, something terrible, even deadly happened. In fact, just a few more chapters later from creation, we read these words. The Lord, the Lord saw how great the wickedness of the human race had become on the earth. That every inclination of the thoughts of the human heart was only evil all the time. In just a few chapters, everything's been turned around. <laughs> and so the curtains close on Act 1, creation, and we're introduced to Act 2, the curse. And we think about, while, while last week I should have been an encouragement that, that sent you away with a little pep in your step and just looking for God's fingerprints in your life and the excitement of his creation with a, a song of heart, a, a heart of praise and thanks for God's creative work and care. This week's like pulling the needle across the vinyl record in mid-song. It's just like, it's a gut punch. And so as we continue the story, we realize how creation has been distorted. Sin enters the story and infects everything God has created. That being said, I feel like we need to acknowledge a few things together because I know there may be some of you don't believe in any of this stuff about God. I'm glad you're here. You, know, you don't have to agree with, with everything I say or <clears throat> you don't have to agree with everything to be here. But what is the long story short that affects the way you view the world? Some of us don't like to talk about it. Some of us don't like to acknowledge sin. In fact, our modern culture isn't a big fan of this talk about sin and sinners and sinfulness. You know, in some ways, I completely understand. Just a, a couple months ago, I went down to a, a basketball game uh, uh, to Ohio State with my son, and we're walking to the stadium just having great conversation. We stopped to cross the street, and there were a couple people with megaphones yelling at us. They were holding these huge signs with bold letters that said, you're a sinner, you're going to burn in hell. <laughs> wow. And as I, as I thought about that, my heart broke for the people whose only exposure to the gospel, to the good news, to the love-filled, grace-abundant, life-giving message of Jesus was a distorted message given by a bunch of angry people yelling at us at a street corner. Others poke fun at the concept of sin with a, just a, a little devil on your shoulder whispering how much more fun and, and fulfilling life could be to if we just bend the rules and, and let loose a little. Sin is diminished to little white lies and indiscretions and mistakes. Or it's used to describe cheesecake that is velvety smooth and sinfully delicious. <laughs> For those of us who are followers of Jesus and believe in God's story, it reminds us we need God. <laughs> we need a Savior. We need forgiveness. And unless we feel the weight of sin and alienation against God, we will never truly appreciate nor fully comprehend the power and the wonder of the good news of Jesus Christ. 
You see, Jesus came to die and to be raised to life so we can be a people who's been radically changed by God's grace. But if we're, gonna, if we're going to know this kind of life, we have to deal with sin. We have to understand sin. You see, to be a sinner means that both inwardly and outwardly, there's something that's not right with me. Sin is in my nature. Sin is in here. Sin doesn't make me feel good about myself. If I understand sin, I realize, man, I'm not so great after all. And so we avoid the word. Instead, as Andy Stanley points out, we like to say, I made a mistake. In other words, I, I wasn't thinking straight. I, I blew it. I, I messed up. I, I didn't know better. I forgot. <laughs> I mean, that's a, that's a lot easier to deal with than feeling sinful, isn't it? And the assumption is you can't be too mad at me because it was just a mistake. I, I didn't know any better. It was just an accident. You see, there's such a big difference between sin and a mistake. A mistake, I can say I'm sorry and excuse it and go on. A sin, that's different. If everything I do wrong can be dumbed down to a mistake, that makes me a mistaker, not a sinner. If I'm not a sinner, then I don't have need for a Savior. Why would I need forgiven? But if you're just a mistaker, then all you have to do is do better next time. Mistakers just have to, to try harder. Mistakers just have to, to break that little nasty habit. Mistakers just have to be more consistent and pay better attention and take their time and think it through more to modify their behavior. But if I'm a sinner, wow, that's more basic to who I am. It goes deeper than I'm comfortable admitting. If I'm a sinner, then simply trying harder isn't going to get it done. And so while our culture tries to diminish and dismiss the concept of sin and, and the fall of mankind, the curse, it's essential and necessary to the story of Jesus. The fall and consequently the sin is, is not just an optional belief if you're a follower of Jesus. Jesus recognized this when he said in Luke 5, Jesus answered them, It is not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners. And see, that here's the issue. If there's no problem, no fall, no curse, no sin, why did Jesus come? What do we need saved from? Why did Jesus have to be born of a virgin? Why do we long for all things to be made right again? What's the point of the cross? Why is this world so painful? Why do we live in such a mess? And to get to these answers, we need to realize that what went wrong and feel the weight of this part of God's story, Act 2, Curse. But first, we need to look at the story. So if you have a Bible, grab a Bible or your device and turn to the first book of the Bible, Genesis chapter 3. Genesis chapter 3. When, I, when Jennifer and I first moved back home um, from, from Roanoke, Virginia, we moved back home. She was about eight, eight months pregnant. Our oldest son was about two, almost two years old, and, and uh, she was having some difficulties with the pregnancy and whatnot. And so one night, we are just like, let's, let's just go take a walk. 
And so it was a, it was a beautiful evening, and we're like, let's just take a peaceful walk. And I put Alec in a, this big red wagon that we had with the sides and everything. And my, my parents had a dog, and he was a golden retriever, beautiful dog. Just uh, love that dog. His name was Solomon. And we're like, well, let's take Solomon with us. He could use the, to get out and take this walk with us. So I tied, I kind of connected, I tied his leash to the side of, of the wagon. And so I'm pulling the wagon with Alec there and the dog, the golden retriever, and my pregnant wife. And it's just like this perfect picture moment. You know, there's that family and his pregnant wife and his little son and, and all, all of the beautiful dog and all of this. And then a motorcycle went by and backfired. <laughs> Scared the dog. <laughs> he, he jerked and, and because he jerked, his leash tugged on the wagon and, and the wagon made a noise and that made him even more scared. And so he, he started to run. He tipped over the wagon. Alec went rolling into the ditch. Jennifer's just standing there helpless. The dog is, is running because he's still attached to part of the wagon and it scares him. <laughs> and all of a sudden, this perfect picture moment turned into utter chaos. I kind of feel like that's what happens here. <laughs> that we have this beauty of creation, it's, peef, it's, pe uh, excuse me, it's peaceful, it's serene, it's beautiful, and then all of a sudden, just like that, it started off well, very good in fact, but quickly turned the chaos and disappointment and death. As we read the story, we can just acknowledge, yes, as we, as we look at this, yes, there is a, a talking snake, some unique trees, and some naked people. And we may not understand what all of that looked like and, and understand all of this, especially if we didn't grow up with this story. But I have no reason to believe that it isn't literal and true. And so I invite you to walk with me this morning as we walk through the story together. Act 1, creation set the stage. Act 2, the curse resets the stage in a way that points to our greatest need. And so we go to Genesis chapter 2, the very last verse says, And the man and his wife were naked and they felt no shame. Things were good. And then we come to verse 1. Now the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? And so Satan speaking through the snake makes God's command sound ridiculous. And he makes it sound ridiculous by exaggerating it. And, and then he starts to cause, to tempt Eve to question God's goodness. Because listen to the original command and warning in chapter 2, verse 15. The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and care for it. And the Lord God commanded the man, you are free to eat from any, any tree in the garden. But you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. For when you eat from it, you will certainly die. And so though God had abundantly provided for all of their needs, allowing them to eat from the other 9,999 trees in the garden, he prohibits them from only one. But Satan uses this to, to sow a seed of discontentment in Eve. And Satan, the representative of evil, brings God's goodness into question. 
And so the story isn't simply about disobedience or just breaking the rules, though that's certainly part of it. It points to our doubt that, that God has our best interest in mind. We doubt God. We distort his goodness. Listen, as Eve takes a cue from the deceiver, she adds her own exaggeration to God's command in verse 2. And the woman said to the serpent, you, <clears throat> we may eat fruit from the trees in the garden, but God did say, you must not eat fruit from the tree that is in the middle of the garden, and you must not touch it, <laughs> or you will die. You will not surely die, the serpent said to the woman, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. And here we see he uses several tactics. The first, he denies the consequences of the disobedience. You're not going to die. Come on. Really? That's not going to happen. The second technique he uses is he implies that God is, is withholding pleasure. It will be great. Don't let God be a wet blanket. You'll know things you didn't know before. But primarily, he says, you will be like God. You will be like God. And, and we all have this desire for ascension. We always want more to be more, to have more. You see, I can do a better job because I know what I want. And at the very root of this disobedience is the disbelief that God is who he really says he is. You will be like God, knowing good and evil. Well, the truth is, they already knew good. They were living in it. They were surrounded by the goodness of, of the creator's garden, living in his presence. But the knowledge of evil was never ours to have. You see, God knows evil like a doctor knows cancer. Adam and Eve would know evil like cancer patient knows cancer. They will experience the effects of it because it will become a part of who they are. When they ate, they weren't simply aware of evil. They, <clears throat> they experienced evil to the extent that they became evil, sin, sinners by nature. And verse 6 says, when the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing the eye and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and ate it. She also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate it. You see, Eve was deceived, but Adam had heard the command directly from God. Adam was there with her. He heard the conversation. He chose to willingly doubt God's goodness and what he knew to be true, and he acted in disobedience. In verse 7, then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they realized they were naked, so they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. Wow, that's completely different than what we read before in chapter 2, verse 25, that they were naked and they felt no shame. Everything has changed. Their eyes were open to shame just as their heart had become open to sin. Their sense of nakedness and feeling of fear were symptoms of their awareness of having violated God's command, their attempt to alleviate these guilt feelings by dealing with the symptoms. They try to cover their nakedness and hide from God, but you can't hide from God. In verse 8, then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day. 
And Adam met, ran up to him and met him and said, Sorry, God, you know that tree that you told us not to eat from? <laughs> we forgot. Sorry, my mistake. And God said, That's okay, you're new here. <laughs> Is that what it says? No. They hid from the Lord God. They hid from the Lord God among the trees of the garden. And the Lord called to the man, where are you? He answered, I heard you in the garden. I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid. And he said, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree that I commanded you not to eat from? God knew exactly what was going on, but he wanted to hear it from them, an admission of guilt. Instead, he, he gets some excuses in the beginning of, of the blame game. In verse 12, the man said, The woman you put here with me, she, she, she's the one. The one you put here with me, she gave me some fruit from the tree, and I ate it. And so the Lord God said to the woman, What is this you have done? And, and the woman said, Well, <laughs> the serpent deceived me. It's his fault that I ate. And as a result of Adam's disobedience, their relationship with God shifts. Their relationship with one another shifts. Their relationship with all creation shifts. And sometimes we get to this point of the story and we just kind of scratch our head and ask, well, why did God put that tree in the garden in the first place? I mean, was he deliberately trying to trip them up? Here's what I understand. God put the tree of knowledge of good and evil in the garden of Eden to give Adam and Eve a choice. Adam and Eve were free to do anything they wanted except eat from that one tree. He gave them the dignity of choice. Choose your own path or choose to experience the goodness and love and eternal relationship with the Lord your Creator. You see, God had the right to prohibit that one thing. Think of it this way. Imagine uh, you have a good friend, and that friend is like, hey, you need a break. Things have been stressful. Things have been crazy. Uh, You need a break. I have this vacation home down at the beach, and I just want you to have it for a week. And you're like, yeah, great. And so you go down there with your family, and, and you arrive at the place, and it's this huge mansion on the beach. It has a beautiful private pool, a private theater, a beautiful views of the ocean. In fact, it's only steps away from the ocean. And you have everything you would ever want or ever need to have just a fantastic, relaxing vacation. And so as you're walking around and exploring the house and seeing all the different things that you'll get to enjoy during the week, you come across a note on the counter. And on the note, it just says, hey, welcome to my house. You know, what's mine is yours. You know, feel free to use anything. Here's where it's at. Here's how to use it. Oh, and by the way, this week, could you water the plants in the house? And you're like... (laughs) Well, that's stupid. I mean, don't they know we're on vacation? (laughs) I mean, why didn't he just hire someone to do that? And you let the plants die, right? No. Because it would be foolish and, and ungrateful to ignore that one instruction. And yet when it comes to God's commands, we're constantly pushing back. 
Why can't I live with my boyfriend? Why can't I, I fudge my taxes a little? I mean, I need the money more. Why can't I just do whatever I want? And we're basically determined for ourselves which commands deserve to obedience and which ones we can ignore. And as a result, God's very good creation was broken. The unity and peace that existed was thrown into chaos and disorder. The lens of creation was cracked and distorted. Life would be painful and full of difficulty. Frustration and grief and suffering will now become commonplace. Relationships will become a power struggle. Work will become harder. We will be cut off from God. Why? Because in their disobedience, they separated themselves from the perfect and holy creator. They abandoned the God of life, and therefore the penalty was death. And yet some will object, well, death seems like a pretty stiff penalty for eating a piece of fruit. I mean, what, what in the world is, is, is the deal here, the deal, the deal with the death sentence? I think it's pretty logical that the first two chapters of Genesis have again and again referred to and described God as the source of all life. He brought the world into existence, the stars, the, the oceans, the mountains, the birds, the fish, the animals. And when he created Adam, he breathed his life into him. And so if God is the source of Adam's life, what would be the natural consequences of unplugging from God by rejecting his commands? Death. I mean, isn't that what happens when you're vacuuming the house and all of a sudden the, the vacuum dies because the, the, the plug comes out of the wall? You unplug from the source and the vacuum dies. And in the same way, when we unplug from God, the source of life, we experience death. We experience separation from God. We experience separation from the life that's found in him. I think this is the worst part about sin. It cuts us off from a relationship with God. We experience spiritual death. God warned them that they would die. It would be a physical death, but more, spe more specifically and significantly, a spiritual death. Their relationship with God died. Eventually, this spiritual death, separation from God, would result in physical separation from the God of life and eternal death. I like how one pastor puts it. They had, they had breathed the air of God's presence. Now it was impossible. For them, their new state must have been like life without oxygen. They were perpetually short of spiritual breath. They could never get enough of God. So what's the implications for us? Very much the same. You see, because of Adam and Eve's sin by nature, we too are sinful. Well, what does that mean? It means that sin infects and affects everything in our world. They unleash the evil and decay that, that permeates our world. Sin pervades everything. We read in Romans chapter 8, For the creation was subjected to frustration, not by its own choice, but by the will of the one who subjected it. We know that the whole creation 
has been groaning as in the pains of childbirth right up to the present time. And see, this is the result of being separated from the reality and the presence of the Creator. Sin affects all creation, uh, but most clearly it affects humanity because it was humanity who rejected God. And now we're born with a sin nature. We've inherited sin from Adam. The guilt of sin has been applied to our account. Romans 5.12, Therefore, just as sin entered the world through one man, and death through sin, in this way death came to all people because all sinned. Sin is in our nature. It's the inward condition handed down to us through, through Adam. And again, we, we might say, well, that doesn't seem fair. It's like when you're on the baseball team and there's a lazy kid on the team who would always make the whole team run bases. Or the kid in the class who doesn't do their homework, so the whole class gets extra homework. It's like, that doesn't seem fair. However, God tells us that we individually and as a human race were represented by Adam. In fact, 1 Corinthians 15 says, in Adam all die. You think of it this way, a diplomat speaking at the United Nations may do or say things that, that many of his countrymen disapprove of but he's still the diplomat. He's the official representative of that country. Adam was our representative. And so our default is selfishness and pride, which comes from the sinful nature. We commit acts of sin because of our sin nature. In other words, I'm not a sinner because I sinned. I sin because that's who I am. I'm a sinner. I think, you know, we look at the news on any given day and you see firsthand evidence that we live as a messed up people in a messed up world. Looking for, searching for, craving for some kind of peace and purpose and belonging in our lives. But we live in a world that, that exists far from those first days with God, that those first day, days of God's completed creation. We see it in the way people treat each other. We see it in, in the damaged creation that we were meant to care for. We see it in the tears of the mother who, whose child has been murdered. We see it in the rage of an alcoholic raising his fist at his wife. We see it at the prayer visual in light of some tragedy. It's everywhere. There's clearly something wrong, distorted out there, but I think the reality, the condition of sin, the presence of sin reminds me that sin just isn't out there. It's also in here. And it's worse than I thought. You see, we're considered guilty not just because of our relationship to Adam, but as a result of our own choices as well. And so sin not only infects everything in our world, sin affects me personally, and it's worse than I thought. What's interesting about all this is that when Jesus came in a, in a culture that was dumbing down sin and representing God, Jesus sets things right and in doing so basically tells the people, your spiritual condition is worse than you thought. You thought you were bad, you're really bad. You thought you were good, you're not good at all. You thought you were righteous, far from, far from it. Not one of you is good enough to be in God's favor. And then he said, but understand this, God loves you. 
And so Jesus' message was, you're worse than you thought, and God loves you more than you can even imagine. And as you can imagine, this was strange to the people. The mistakers didn't like Jesus because he made them feel bad. However, the people who knew they were sinners loved him because they were honest enough to look in the mirror and say, he's right, I'm worse than I thought. And if there's any hope in the world for me, it's, it's not because I'm going to do better or promise harder or commit more or discipline stricter. If there's hope for me, a sinner, it's not going to be through my own efforts. I need a savior. I need help. You see, and Jesus clarifies this one day by talking to them about the law. And he says in Matthew 5, you have, you have heard that it was said to the people long ago, do not murder. And they all go, yeah, we remember that. Thou shalt not murder. The Ten Commandments, just saw it on TV. It's on every time, uh, every Easter. I've never murdered anyone. I'm good. And Jesus drops the bomb, but I tell you that anyone who is angry with his brother will be subject to judgment. And the people are like, no, hold on a second. Wait, you're equating actually murdering someone with just thinking about murdering them, about just being angry? You're saying that even if I imagine it, if I'm angry enough to do it, I just don't want to get caught? You mean my anger towards somebody makes me guilty? I don't even have to do anything to be guilty before God. I just have to have these thoughts and this attitude. And while, he thinks, while, while they're thinking about that, Jesus drops another one. He says, you've heard it said, do not commit adultery. And they're like, right, that's wrong. We've not committed adultery. We're good, honest, faithful people. And again, Jesus isn't finished. And he says, but I tell you that anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. And the people just kind of like, okay, that's it. Jesus, you've just, you've just called all of us. Well, not me, but all of my friends and neighbors. You've just called them adulterers. You've just called every man that's looked at a woman lustfully an adulterer. Come on, Jesus, I get thou shalt not commit adultery. That's a do thing. <clears throat> but you're saying that even if I think about it, imagine it, look lustfully at a woman, then we're guilty of sin. Do you realize, Jesus, that you just condemned all men? Who can be that good? Who can be that righteous? If that's our standard, if that's what it takes to get them to heaven, none of us are going there. And Jesus said, I'm not done. <laughs> Keep your pen out. And he says, you have heard that it was said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. And they're like, Jesus, I don't even pray for my neighbors. And you're telling me God expects me to pray for my enemies, to pray for those who, who hurt me, who persecute me? That's the standard? That's what God gets excited about? And so you're telling me I'm guilty of murder because I'm angry? I'm guilty of adultery because I have lustful thoughts and basically I'll never please you because I don't love my enemies? That's what it takes to be righteous? My goodness, there's nobody righteous but God. And Jesus smiled and said, I know, and that's my point. 
You see, they came thinking that they were just mistakers who needed to do a little better. Jesus came to convince them that they were, in, they were sinners in need of a Savior. You see, Jesus doesn't just wait until sin and wrongdoing make the headlines. He sees the seeds of lust and, and pride and ego and self-centeredness and greed, and he says, it, it's got to be dealt with. It's got to go. And that's what the condition of sin indicates about mankind. We all have the seeds within us. It's not just out there. My, the, the seeds are in here. And we all are under this weight of this distorted and sinful reality. In Romans 3, Paul says, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, are separate from him. And because of this, we're lost. We're in this desperate need to be rescued. Because we've been sentenced to physical and spiritual death, separated from God now and forever, dominated and controlled by sin, spiritually blinded, without understanding, enemies of Christ, objects of God's wrath. We need to feel the weight of that. This isn't something we can excuse ourselves from. It's, it's not something that we can work hard or harder to overcome. We can't just decide that, well, then I'll just clean up my act a little bit. I'll start going to church, and I'll watch my language a little more closely. I'll, I'll coach the Little League team, volunteer at the shelter. I'll do all of these good things. No, we need a divine intervention. See, sin affects everything in our world. It affects me personally, and it's worse than I thought. But... We have hope, a hope that's centered and secured in Jesus. Take a deep breath. There is hope in all of this, and his name is Jesus. Even though the, the third chapter of Genesis has put our lives and our world in a tailspin, God was already at work. When he's talking to Satan in the garden after the fall, he gives this promise, and I will cause hostility between you and the woman and between her offspring and her offspring, your offspring and her offspring. He will strike your head and you will strike his heel. This is God's promise that he will defeat sin and Satan once for all. You see, Satan may have struck Jesus' heel, but Jesus would crush Satan's head. And now those who confess, <clears throat> confess Jesus as Lord, saying yes to Jesus and rearranging their priorities around him are, are reconciled to God. The relationship can be healed. And that's the good news. If death and sin came to all of us from one man, the opposite is true as well. You see, if we continue in that, what we read earlier in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, it says, for as in Adam all die, but so in Christ all will be made alive. And in the same way, through one man, we can, we can find forgiveness, we can be reconciled to God. Paul writes in Romans 5, yes, Adam's one sin brings condemnation for everyone, but Christ's one act of righteousness brings a right relationship with God and new life for everyone. Because one person disobeyed God, many became sinners, but because one other person obeyed God, many will be made righteous. You see, the weight of sin is heavy, but under the weight of sin, there's a greater hope. 
from the moment man sinned, God came after us. We read earlier in Romans 5, for the sin of this one man, Adam, caused death to rule over many. But even greater... But even greater is God's wonderful grace and his gift of righteousness for all who receive it will live in triumph over sin and death through this one man, Jesus Christ. You see, one man ruined it for everyone for a while. But one man will fix it forever. Jesus will absorb the penalty and the weight of sin he will rise to offer us new life and an eternal and damaged life that will lead to a new creation with no sin. Our hope is centered and secured in Jesus. And so if you're here this morning and, and you're feeling the weight of that sin, know that Jesus is your hope. Embrace him. And if you're here and, and you've maybe been to church for a long time and you've heard all this before and it's just kind of like oh talking about that again and it's just kind of bland for you I graciously pray that you will once again remember the weight of your sin and your separation from God so that you will remember and know the greater hope of God's grace so you will be humbled by his love, that you will live with a continual appreciation for what he's done, for the deliverance, for the rescue that he's done on your behalf. And if you're here and you're not sure what you think about this, man, I'm glad you're here. Before you dismiss it, get to know the whole story. And next week, God has a plan and you're part of it. <laughs> Let's pray together.